Welcome back to my Bible study podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. I'm Brian, and this episode we're continuing our walk through the 12 books of the Bible that are termed the Minor Prophets. So far, we've covered the first three books, the books of Hosea, Joel, and Amos. Today, we're going to tackle the book of Obadiah. So the book of Obadiah is all of one chapter long. It contains 21 verses, and it only takes about three minutes to read through. So it's short, and it packs a doom-laden wallop with a finish of restoration and the coming kingdom of God. The primary recipient of the message of wrath is the nation of Edom, a kingdom which is located south of Israel. The primary recipient of restoration is the nation of Israel. Richard Belcher notes that the message of Obadiah is the destruction of the enemies of God's people, which are represented specifically in Edom, and then the establishment of God's kingdom. Jason DeRochi summarizes the book. Proud in her own security in the heights of Gilead, Edom has gloated over Israel's destruction by foreign powers. However, her participation in that disaster will bring Yahweh's wrath. Edom will be destroyed. Mount Zion and Israel will be delivered, and God's kingdom will triumph. So, as we walk through the book, remember a few keys. Edom, an enemy of God, a warning to all those who would run from God. Israel, recipients of the promised mercy and grace that God would bestow upon his people. A remnant promised by God whose line would lead directly to Jesus the Messiah. Verse 1 starts the vision of Obadiah. So the who is Obadiah. That's the book's name. That's the prophet's name. His name means one who serves Yahweh. Obadiah's name literally means servant of the Lord. Other than his name, though, we don't know anything else about Obadiah the prophet. The win of Obadiah is also a bit of a mystery. It's hard to pin down because no specific kings or time frames are mentioned. Commentators and scholars have gone back and forth between a very early date, say around 850 BC, and a potentially very late date, around 400 BC. One of the problems with the very early view is that the Edomite revolt during the 1850s didn't really coincide with any plundering of Israel, which the book of Obadiah talks about a lot. One of the problems with the very late view is that it assumes all of the prophecies in Obadiah about the destruction of Edom had already occurred, and so the scholars' views would say that the prophecy occurred after the event. So, sort of like the book of Joel, any timelines have to be deduced via context clues, and also, just like the book of Joel, I'll mention that uncovering a specific time is not of primary importance here. I just kind of think it's interesting to look over the facts of the book and to see where that might lead us. So indulge me a second while we put on our Sherlock Holmes hats on this one. So some facts outlined in the book. In Obadiah 11, we get the idea that Jerusalem has already been destroyed. And one of the major themes of the book is that Edom will be destroyed at some future date. So we're looking for any timeline references bracketed by those dates. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians around 587 BC. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon occupied Edom around 553 BC. Just going off those two context clues alone, we can probably deduce that the best date for this prophecy was between around 587 BC and 553 BC. That's not a perfect time frame, but a 30-year-ish range is better than a 450-ish year range. 
This time frame would mean that Obadiah was prophesying during the first half of the Babylonian exile, shortly after most of the Israelites were forcibly escorted from Jerusalem to Babylon. The where is actually even more interesting, because Obadiah wasn't prophesying against Edom from Edom itself, and he probably wasn't prophesying against them from alongside the other Israelite exiles in Babylon. Some scholars and commentaries believe that Obadiah the prophet was actually writing from what was left of Judah, maybe even from within the ruins of Jerusalem itself. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem pretty completely and carried off the Israelites in a couple different waves, but there were in fact some Israelites who remained in Judah, mostly in the rural areas outside of Jerusalem. Babylon had actually appointed a local governor for the area of Judah to oversee these people. Jerusalem remained in ruins for the entire exile, but there were small groups of people living within the city ruins, so Obadiah could have been standing amongst the rubble of Jerusalem proclaiming a future time when the Israelites would return from exile, and an even further future date when God would judge the nations, restore his people, and usher in the new Jerusalem. The Vision of Obadiah This is what the Lord Yahweh says about Edom. We have heard news from Yahweh, and an ambassador is sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let's rise up against her in battle. Obadiah 1 In these short 21 verses of the book of Obadiah, God proclaims judgment on the nation of Edom. This isn't the first instance in the Minor Prophets where the nation of Edom has been called out by God. The previous book of the Bible, the book of Amos, levies accusations and warnings against the Edomites before focusing on Israel. Amos chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 say, Thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions of Edom, yes, for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, and cast off all pity, and his anger raged continually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire on Taman, and I will devour the palaces of Basra. Obadiah is picking up Amos's thread against the nations, and zooming almost exclusively in on Edom. So, who were the Edomites? Well, way back in the book of Genesis, God makes a promise to Isaac's wife, Rebekah. Genesis 25:23 says, Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. The one people will be stronger than the other. The elder will serve the younger. So, Isaac and Rebekah had two sons. The oldest was named Esau, and the youngest was Jacob. Through some deception and trickery, Jacob convinced Esau to sell his birthright. Jacob eventually gets renamed Israel, and Esau is also called Edom. So the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Because of this, Edom and Esau are used interchangeably in this book, and they both refer to the same kingdom of people. There was this animosity between the people groups from the very start. Even after the time of Jacob and Esau, in Numbers chapter 20, while Moses was leading the Israelites through the wilderness, he sends messengers to the king of Edom to request safe passage through their territory. We pick up the story in Numbers 20 verse 18. Edom said to him, You shall not pass through me, lest I come out with the sword against you. The children of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, 
then will I give its price. Let me only without doing anything else pass through on my feet. He said, You shall not pass through. Edom came out against him with many people and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. So Israel turned away from him. We see more animosity in chapters like 1 Samuel chapter 22, which I won't get into, but suffice to say that the Edomites continued to carry a chip on their shoulder about Israel up to the bitter end. Why is God singling out this nation here in Obadiah and not about these earlier instances? Well, Amos accused the Edomites of pursuing his brother with the sword, not pitying their brothers and allowing their anger to rage continually. Edom's brothers being the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob. So in Obadiah, what are some verses with examples of why God is singling out the Edomites? Verse 3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rocks, whose habitation is high, who says in his heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Verses 11 through 14 declare, In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried away his substance and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were like one of them. But don't look down on your brother in the day of his disaster, and don't rejoice over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Don't speak proudly in the day of distress. Don't enter into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't look down on their affliction in the day of their calamity, neither seize their wealth on the day of their calamity. Don't stand in the crossroads to cut off those who escape. Don't deliver up those of his who remain in the day of distress. God will put the Edomites to shame because of their enmity toward God and the nation of Israel. During Judah's time of need, not only did the nation of Edom not help, they also actively hurt the Israelites. Edom is found guilty of having participated in the fall of Judah and the pillaging of Jerusalem. They were filled with this bitterness and covetousness toward Israel that didn't stop at turning a blind eye to their plights, but it also bubbled over into this hostile intent and action. What were the judgments that were being pronounced upon Edom in this book? Well, Amos announces that God will send a fire on the region of Taman and will devour the places of Basra, a judgment against one of the main Edomite cities. Lamentations 4.22 speaks of the Lord uncovering the sins of Edom. Ezekiel chapters 35 and 36 talk about the Edomite's hand in Judah's fall. Ezekiel 35.15 even sounds very familiar to some of the judgments that we hear in Obadiah. They say, As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so will I do to you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir and all Edom, even all of it, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. In Obadiah, God continues to to unpack the judgments that Edom will experience. Obadiah 2 says, Behold, I have made you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. Obadiah 4 says, Though you mount on high as the eagle, and though your nest is set among the stars, I will bring you down from there, says Yahweh. Obadiah 8 through 10 says, Won't I in that day, says Yahweh, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mountain of Esau? Your mighty men, Taman, will be dismayed, in, to the end that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. For the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame will cover you, and you will be cut off 
forever. All of the material things, their military might, and their defensive fortifications that helped Edom feel smug and secure, they were all going to be stripped away by God. The result was going to be that all of those people living there who felt pridefully comfortable that they had escaped any punishment, they were the ones who were going to experience pain and anguish. They're wise, they're rich, they're warriors, none would be immune to God's judgment. John Blanchard says that the pride of their heart had deceived them. Charles Ryrie declares that Edom stands judged and her doom is certain because of her pride in rejoicing over the misfortunes that befell Jerusalem. Verse 17 references the house of Jacob and Joseph as fire and flame residing next to the house of Esau, who is portrayed as stubble. Adam Howell from Daily Dose of Hebrew declares that stubble beside a fiery flame will be completely burnt up. This is exactly the fate that befalls the nation of Edom. Shortly after Jerusalem's fall, Edom becomes ruled by the Babylonians. Then in the 6th century, they get overrun by nomadic tribes. The remaining Edomites are forced to relocate back to Judah, seeking asylum from the very people they once pridefully turned their backs on. The book speaks specifically about the judgment upon the people of the nation of Edom, but this pronouncement will be true of all people as well. There will come a day when God's people will judge the inhabitants of all nations. Those who have run against God and God's people will experience wrath and destruction on that day. Jesus highlights this connection between accepting him and accepting those he sends in Matthew chapter 10. Here he is commissioning his disciples to proclaim his good news around Israel. And in Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, Whoever doesn't receive you, nor hear your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust from your feet. Most certainly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. All of this starts to dive into a major theme, not just of Obadiah, but of the last couple minor prophets as well. The idea of God's justice, God's judgment, and the day of the Lord. Obadiah 15 says, For the day of Yahweh is near all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. God's justice will be swift, fair, and universally applied. The result might not be the same for everybody but the standard will be. Prideful human efforts to insulate ourselves from the judgment of God will not provide security. Ultimately, the standard becomes, in whom did you place your faith? Who did you seek after? Did you seek after God and place your faith in him? Or did you seek after worldly comforts and worldly securities? Obadiah uses the word drinks in two different senses in this book. Edom previously drank from the cup of victory after Jerusalem fell, and they felt arrogantly superior. Yet in verse 16, we get references to Edom, and consequently the other nations, having to drink up all of the cup of God's judgment. Obadiah 16 says, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so will all the nations drink continually. Yes, they will drink, swallow down, and will be as though they had not been. When talking about the nations that are hostile to Yahweh, Howell notes that the nations will take up the cup of God's wrath and chug it, and they will exist as if they had never existed. 
Short term, the day of the Lord brought about justice upon the Edomites. Long term, every nation, tribe, and person will be brought to judgment on that great and awesome day of the Lord. The book of Obadiah isn't all judgment and wrath, however. There is a beautiful and clear message of restoration for God's people, specifically a restoration for the nation of Israel. A remnant will be spared and they will be brought back into the promised land. Verse 17 says, But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Israel received judgment and entered into exile. Yet there would be a future day when God's people would stand on Mount Zion and would themselves judge Edom. The book ends in verse 21. Saviors will go up on Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be Yahweh's. That word saviors or judges is the same word that is used to describe the leaders appointed in the book of Judges, who were supposed to save the Israelites from their surrounding enemies. Then, from this chosen remnant, God's kingdom would be ushered in. This kingdom would be extended to Israel, to Edom, and to all of the nations. The book ends with the promise that in the future, Yahweh himself would usher in the kingdom of God, and the divine descendant from the line of David would take the crown as ruler over this eternal kingdom. Alrighty, so let's dive into a couple little interesting nuances from the book of Obadiah. I already mentioned the drinking that was referenced a couple times, specifically in verse 16. What exactly does this mean? It has to do with Edom initially having celebrated Jerusalem's downfall, and then of Edom and the nations having to drink the entirety of the cup of God's wrath. Well, one kind of play on words that's going on here is that if Edom was actively involved in pillaging Jerusalem and Solomon's temple, then they could have literally been celebrating the downfall of Israel by toasting from the ceremonial drinking vessels found in the temple that were reserved for priests. They could have literally been getting drunk while celebrating with wines reserved for religious festivals. This kind of imagery brings into full vision the absolute arrogance of Edom and the utter completeness with which they would have forsaken God. They wouldn't even have batted an eye at blaspheming in the temple, God's dwelling place with his people. One other interesting tidbit before we jump into more application-based things is verse 20, which reads, The captives of this army of the children of Israel who are among the Canaanites will possess even to Zarephath, and the captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. Okay, so we read that and know that Israel was exiled into Babylon proper and beyond. If Obadiah was in Judah just after Babylon conquered it, then giving this prophecy would have informed the Israelites that those who had been taken captive were being taken captive to the extreme far end of the empire. They would have been really potentially scared that they could still have been exiled there as well. I mean, Sepharad was in Asia Minor, which is nowhere close to Jerusalem. This would have been unnerving to the people who heard it. Also, the promise of the lands that they would one day possess would have included Zarephath, which is far north of Jerusalem in Phoenicia. So they might have been exiled further than they could have imagined, but they would also experience greater possession than they had previously known. 
Sometimes putting ourselves into that ancient culture's mindset is hard, but they are just a few cool tidbits to think about if you're trying to read Obadiah through the lens of an original Israelite audience member. When reading Obadiah, it's easy to get caught up in the punishment of Edom and the restoration of Israel, and to feel as if this book isn't really for us as 21st century hearers of God's word. Like we can believe every word of it, and yet not feel moved by what it is saying. This can have two aspects to it. One is just plain practical wisdom that we can find within God's word and overlay into application for our lives. I usually get a little squirmy when people try to make too much of this, too much of the application side. Like, these are the seven ways that Obadiah is leading you to a better life. No, I try to avoid that because I feel that God's word is first and foremost meant to lead us to God. But if you were to pin me to a chair and make me come up with some practical wisdom from Obadiah, here it goes. Obadiah is about breaking down the things that we might try to find a false sense of security in. Do not hold a grudge about your past interactions with people. Do not be bitter about what you might see as others' successes. Do not be prideful over what you might arrogantly consider your own achievements. Do not gloat over your victories, especially when they come at the expense of someone else. Do not assume that you are good to go with God or that God will extend infinite patience toward you while you run far from him. So, in the end, Obadiah is revealing to us that we need to break those things down and that we need to instead return to God. This concept of seeing our need for God above other things that we previously found security in is where the biblical idea of repentance comes from. Edom did not see their need for God, and they did not repent and return to him. So instead of coming to their knees before God seeking mercy, they were brought to their knees before God through wrath. Richard Belcher says that Obadiah is a reminder to God's people that God will have the last word. We do well to heed that reminder. We do well to ask the question that Mark Dever asks in his book Promises Made. What have you worked hard to build over the last several years of your life that you think will provide peace and security? Then I would add, how might your pursuing that thing get in the way of your pursuing God better? So, how does judgment on Edom, Israel's restoration, a surviving remnant, and God's kingdom point us toward Jesus? Well, the book mentions the saviors who would act as judges, all of which points forward to the Messiah, the one true savior, who is the true judge of the world. And that remnant that would return to Jerusalem after the exile might have been a short-term fulfillment of Obadiah's promised restoration, but it also served to foreshadow a future fulfillment. This remnant preserves the family tree of the snake-crushing seed of the woman the blessing to all nations from the line of Abraham, the king from the offspring of David, the eternal ruler over all the nations, the one who would be judge and savior of all and who will one day return again, bringing the new Jerusalem and calling God's people from all nations to worship him there. Jesus is the one who ushered in God's kingdom and who opened a path to salvation through the blood he shed on the cross. Thank you for listening. 
Hopefully this episode better equipped you to read the short yet powerful book of Obadiah. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in the public domain. I'll try to put on the Facebook a post up about all the citations from the Minor Prophet books that we've covered so far. Next episode, I kind of want to wrap the three books of Joel, Amos, and Obadiah together and see them through the lens of their common themes of justice, righteousness, and the day of the Lord. Until next time, I love y'all.